Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' uh, longest established air conditioning company. They do a great job. And uh, you can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show lined up for you today, including Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current world events. We'll also visit with Larry Reed. He's the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll be talking about George Schuyler, journalist, individualist, and courageous contrarian, and Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries. Jim will be joining us as well. It is May the 31st. It is Memorial Day, and on this day in 1921, thousands of white citizens in Tulsa, Oklahoma, descended on a city's predominantly black Greenwood district, burning homes and businesses to the ground and killing hundreds of people. Long mischaracterized as a race riot rather than mass murder, the Tulsa Race Massacre stands as one of the worst incidents of racial violence in the nation's history. In the years following World War I, segregation was the law of the land, and the Ku Klux Klan was gaining ground, not only in the Jim Crow South, but across the United States. Amid that charged environment, Tulsa's African-American community was nationally recognized for its affluence. The Greenwood District, known as the Black Wall Street, boasted more than 300 black-owned businesses, including two movie theaters, doctor's offices, and pharmacies. On May the 30th, 1921, a young black man named Dick Rowland entered an elevator in an office building in downtown Tulsa. At some point, Rowland was alone in the elevator with a white operator, Sarah Page. It's unclear what happened next. One common version is that Rowland stepped on Page's foot, but Page screamed and Rowland fled the scene. The next day, the police arrested him. Rumors about the incident spread quickly through Tulsa's white community, some members of which undoubtedly resented the prosperity of Greenwood's district. After a story published in the Tulsa Tribune on the afternoon of May the 31st claimed that Roland had attempted to rape Page, an angry white mob gathered in front of the courthouse demanding that Roland be handed over. Seeking to prevent a lynching, a group of some 75 black men arrived on the scene that night, some of them World War I veterans who were carrying weapons. After a white man tried to disarm a black veteran and the gun went off, chaos broke out. Over the next 24 hours, thousands of white rioters poured into the Greenwood District, shooting unarmed black citizens in the streets and burning an area of some 35 city blocks. Can you imagine? Including more than 1,200 black-owned houses, numerous businesses, a school, a hospital, and dozens of churches. Historians believe as many as 300 people were killed in the rampage, though official counts at the time were much lower. By the time Governor James Robertson declared martial law and a National Guard troop arrived in Tulsa by noon on June the 1st, the Greenwood District lay in ruins. Survivors of the massacre worked to rebuild the neighborhood, but segregation remained in force in Tulsa and the nation, and racial tensions only grew, even as the massacre and its lingering scars were left largely unacknowledged by the white community for decades to come. In 1997, the Oklahoma State Legislature created the Oklahoma Commission to study the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921, later named the Tulsa Race Massacre Commission, which studied the massacre and recommended that reparations be paid to the remaining black survivors. City officials continued to investigate the event of May the 31st and June the 1st, 1921, and to search for unmarked graves used to bury the massacre's many victims. Uh, a real sad day in our American history, uh, and uh, I think it points out how you know there was this Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, very, very robust community, people doing very well. Can you imagine thirty-five blocks of uh, black community doing extremely well? Nevertheless, a uh, very sad day in our history. Well, on another topic, today we observe Memorial Day Day to honor, remember, and express gratitude for those serving in the military who gave the last full measure of their devotion in our nation's defense to preserve our freedom, liberty, and way of life. A remarkable thing that so many people have died and perished uh, to protect our liberty. 
over a million people during the Civil War uh, on both sides, uh, uh, and over a million in World War II uh, gave their lives just in those two events to preserve our liberty and freedom. There's no other country in the world that has the type of freedom. Well, this is the last bastion of freedom in the world. If we lose our freedom, there is no freedom. Uh, rolling to remember, oh, I want to point out that the Collier County Veterans Council is proud to announce an event today, Memorial Day, uh, at 10 a.m. Musical Prelude starts at 9.30 at Hodges Funeral Home at the Naples Memorial Gardens. Bring a long chair. There's going to be a terrific program, including uh, President William C. Carl. He's the president of the Veterans Memorial Council at Collier County. Uh, 20 veteran groups throughout Collier County will be there. CDR Jeff Kunrich, U.S. Navy, will deliver the keynote address. Lead with Vision and music will be provided by the Pine Ridge Middle School Symphonic Band. So it's going to be quite an event. Again, 10 o'clock this morning at uh, Naples Funeral Home Memorial Gardens. Uh, prelude musical prelude starts at 9:30. Rolling to Remember is an annual event aimed at honoring World War uh, War veterans who were either taken prisoner or still missing in action. The motorcycle event, formerly known as Rolling Thunder, will take place this weekend in Washington D.C. This year's turnout is expected to be overwhelming due to the attention the event has received after being denied a permit for a staging area from the Pentagon. Uh, under Joe Biden, the permit was reportedly rejected over COVID health concerns. The National Executive Director of AMVETS said this attempt to block a tradition backfired as he was expecting an even larger than projected crowd of over 100,000 riders to show up at JFK Stadium. 100,000 riders, isn't that terrific? There'll be several road closures in the nation's capital to accommodate the riders as they sp spread their message of awareness to veteran issues. These efforts are well-respected as the group aims to raise awareness of the 22 veterans who die by suicide each day. Uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser has officially granted JFK Stadium permission to rent the parking lot of the AMVETS for this event. Well, uh, Sunday on uh, Fox & Friends ahead of the Memorial Day uh, uh, weekend, Representative Brian Mast uh, he's a Republican from Florida, shared his criticism of Vice President Kamala Harris for her Memorial Day weekend tweet telling Americans to enjoy the weekend, accompanied by a photo of herself and President Joe Biden's Memorial Day weekend tweet urging Americans to stay cool. Mass is a retired Army Ranger, said in the tweets from the nation's lead, leaders are a far cry from the speeches seen from the likes of President Ronald Reagan and others. He lamented that the White House sees members of military as pawns, he said. I would say their thoughts are a far cry from the patriotism I've seen from others, he said. I'll, I'm giving you my opinion at this point. It's because I think there's a lot of culture just as pawns. He added, and this uh, that's a really painful thing to say. I think the White House sees many of those in service, and they'd rather see an army of woke rather than an army of imperfect badasses that we served alongside. And I would take one of them over any army of woke and I think this, there's a resentment in that, truly. That's how I feel about the situation. I'm happy you said it. <clears throat> well, authorities in South Florida are seeking help from the public after two people died and at least 20 others were injured early Sunday during a, shootout, a shooting outside a banquet hall. The gunfire erupted in the uh, El Mola Banquet Hall in northwest Miami-Dade County near Hialeah, police said. The hall had been rented out for a concert. Three people rolled out of an SUV and opened fire on a crowd outside. Uh, that's so sad. They were all masked up, pulled out guns, shot 20, 25 people, killed two. It's a very sad thing. Camping World CEO and TV personality Marcus Lemonis said on Twitter that he was offering $100,000 reward to help authorities in my hometown arrest and convict the suspects. Uh, Remember, said police were grateful for the reward. They're putting up another twenty-five thousand, so the total reward would be one hundred twenty-five thousand. Uh, hopefully, uh, that area is not trying to defund the police. You can see how badly we need police protection, not only there but all across the nation and here in Collier County. Very grateful for Sheriff Ram Rambosk and what he's doing. Well, it's been over a year since the WHO declared the coronavirus a pandemic after originally downplaying the viral threat. 
And it's no secret that both the disease and the response to combat it following the SARS COVID, uh, uh, COVID-2 outbreak in late 19, uh, 2019 have turned our world upside down. Mandates, lock, lockdowns, and guidelines seem to change every day uh, and every time Dr. Fauci opens his mouth. All of these unprecedented rules were put into place, we were told, to stop the spread of a disease that likely is linked to the death of over a half a million Americans in just over a year. Now you'd think there'd be a disease that is a death sentence for the elderly, the obese, and those with pre-existing conditions that has forced children to avoid school, mask up, and get vaccinated would have certainly been uh, faced with a ramped-up research in the prophylactic and therapeutic solutions since its arrival in the United States. One would think that after all of this time, there would be a consensus in the hospitals, in the nursing homes, and other treatment centers on how to treat a COVID-positive patient or resident. Sadly, this is not the case. There still is no agreed-upon treatment plan for elderly patients who catch coronavirus to assist in their recovery. It's a sad thing indeed. The CDC and Dr. Fauci have ignored the treatments of the coronavirus unless a patient is under severe stress. This is criminal conduct, in my opinion. How many hundreds of thousands of deaths can be blamed for not having a therapeutic in place, like uh, hydroxychloroquine or intervectin or other things that have been used? Uh, Dr. Peter McCulloch, check him out. He's a medical doctor, and uh, he was on the Tucker Carlson show, and he pointed this out. This is a real crime, quite frankly. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you visit the website, uh, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Coming up, we're going to visit with uh, Mark Schulman. Uh, Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCenter.com. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. And that's just one of the terrific initiatives. And you can find out more by visiting the FGA. 
org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. He's a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. We'll be talking about what's happening in the Beltway. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is an author. He's written several books, mainly uh, on past presidents. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website, good for kids of all ages. It's called History of Central, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So it is uh, Memorial Day, and uh, typically, I mean, on, on Monday mornings, we talk about global events, but I'd like to start off on Memorial Day and get your thoughts. Absolutely, Bob. I mean, unfortunately, Memorial Day in the United States has turned into a, a day for barbecues, the official beginning of the summer, but I think we should spend more time memorializing those who have given their lives to ensure American freedom, because yeah. they gave the ultimate, ultimate sacrifice. Yeah, and just to spend two seconds here, and so people understand the numbers we're talking about in the different American wars, and there were people who died in between the wars. Obviously, in the Revolutionary War, four thousand four hundred and thirty-five Americans gave their lives. In the War of eighteen twelve, two thousand two hundred and sixty. In the Mexican-American War, thirteen thousand two hundred and eighty-three. In the Civil War on the Union side, three hundred and sixty-four thousand five hundred and eleven. In the Spanish-American War, 2,446. World War I, 116,316. World War II, 405,399 gave their lives. The Korean War, 36,995. Vietnam, 58,151. Desert Storm, 382. Enduring Freedom, that's Afghanistan, which may be a little bit, I don't have the last year's figures, 2,286 and Iraqi freedom, 4,411, wow. for a total of 1,010,954 Americans didn't, didn't live to live their lives, didn't live to see their children grow up. Many of them didn't live to have children, to get married. All gave their lives so that uh, people can live free in America today. Yeah. And um, you know, we, we should remember them in a much more significant way than we do at the current in the current time. Absolutely. In fact, uh, and that doesn't include the people that have lost limbs. or yeah. Right. So all of those different things. One of the interesting things I'm looking at these figures is in the earlier wars, like in the Civil War, there were more deaths than there were wounded. 364,511 uh, deaths and 281,881 wounded. Yeah. Today, thanks to modern medicine, Iraqi freedom, we have 4,411 Deaths, but 31,958 wounded. Or yeah. enduring freedom, 2,286 deaths and 20,050 um, wounded. So you have all the women say wounded, it is that losing legs, losing arms, uh, being paralyzed for life, and everything else. But because of the advances in battlefield medicine, in the Civil War, you would die. Today, yeah. you will live, and you'll get to see your family, but you may be crippled for life. Right. And that doesn't include and a post-traumatic distress disorder. And no, that's just, that's just wounded on the battlefield. Yeah. And the post-traumatic stress is a whole other set of issues. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the problems we always have is it's, it's very nice, you know, wars, never wars are never good, but you know, there's a war, and then there's the aftermath, and we don't... We don't spend enough on the aftermath. We don't spend enough on the GIs that didn't come back, their families, and more importantly, the wounded who are who wounded for life. And um, we need to make them a priority. Absolutely. Well, I'm happy you brought that up, Mark, and it, I think it just points out the need for us to remember we're observing Memorial Day, not celebrating it. And uh, we ought to observe it by giving thanks and, and uh, honoring the people that have died for our freedom and our, you know, the, we're the only country in the world that has our system of government and people. You know, I, I even think about the founders, who m many of them died broke, who gave up <laughs> so much in order to make sure that we had uh, uh, the freedom that we have. Absolutely. And um, you know, it's unfortunate that, that service today in the American Armed Forces is divided into either the very poor or those families that have a sense of service and parents, grandparents, etc., have served. Yeah. And um, those are the two groups that, that basically maintain the American Armed Forces. Yeah. So, so I just generally appreciate uh, your uh, bringing that to our attention, and thank you for that. Uh, there's uh, a lot going on in Israel. Netanyahu, he looks like he's out. Where do we stand? Well, it's very close to being out there. You know, the old saying... It's not over until the old lady sings, and that's the feeling uh, in Israel that it's not quite over. 
but at this point, the majority there is looks like an alternative government is going to be formed. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, he offered every possible person a coalition with him, but no one believes him because he's violated every single political agreement he's almost ever made. Mm. So nobody's willing to to take his word at this point. Um, and of course, there's the issue of the fact that he's under indictment. Yeah. Um, so it looks very, very likely that a coalition, an unusual coalition made up of right, center, and left co- um, parties are going to come together to create a government. Uh, the feeling is that even though there's uh, large ideological differences between the co- between the um, different um, elements of this coalition. Most of them are serious people who want to get their ministries working, want to get the government working. There's been this sense because Netanyahu has been been under investigation and trial all this time of his trying to undermine the judicial system and attacking the judicial system. And there's the sense that we need to return to good governance. Yeah. And that's mostly why the, why this is about to happen. It looks like. Um, like I said, it's not final though. You know, it's, it's final a- when um, the uh, Knesset votes. Uh, to impanel a new government, and that probably won't be until the beginning of next week. Yeah, uh, he but. appears to be such a, a strong international has a strong international profile. I take it that profile doesn't stand up uh, domestically. Well, it stands up to some extent. The reason he is popular, look, he's, his English is impeccable, as you know. Yeah, um, I'm sure he'd make a very successful senator from whatever state he decided to run from. Um, he spent many years in the United States. He grew up in the United States. He went to MIT. I mean, he's well-versed in America. But the reality is um, his excellence in presenting himself, and I think there's no question, he does a great job presenting himself. He's he's charismatic. He's able to convince people to do certain things. And that all works in his favor and Israel's favor. The problem is he turned out to be uh, a poor administrator, no one wants to work with him. He's lost all of his key. He's lost or pushed away all of his the key staffers, the serious people who used to work for him. They're all in the opposition in one kind or another. Huh. And on top of which, look, we come down to the problem that we've talked about before. He's been in power for twelve years. I'm a strong believer. It was decided by the United States Congress after and the people generally, but after the after FDR ran for the fourth term and obviously died. It was decided to pass an amendment that limited terms to two terms, yeah. because and then maximum you could be a president for a little under ten years. Because if you were vice president, you succeed the president um, in less than half the term, in more than half the term, then you can run twice. But that's the limit. Yeah, you know, you reach a point, and this is all over the world. You see this, and it, and it can be also not only in, in national governments; it's a state government. It can be in a mayor. At some point. Public officials have a hard time separating out themselves from the office they hold. Yeah, and 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 that's why there should be in certain in certain areas. I think in executive in executive positions, there should be hard term limits. Uh, I would agree not, with that. Not, I'm not totally sure. I believe in that in legislative side. That's a different issue. I agree. But on the executive side, there should be hard hard term limits. I agree. Uh, the uh, a new broom sweeps clean, right? <laughs> so people. Right. No, listen. Forget the forget corruption for a moment. Although most people who are in the job too long end up being corrupt, there's always this sense, and I've seen this firsthand amongst politicians, that I work so hard, I I, I give my whole life, I've given my whole life. Aren't I entitled to yeah. whatever it might be, even though it's not really legal? And the answer is no. And that happens time and time again. It's like best intentions. They're working really hard. I I really am entitled to this. Yeah. And um, some of the things they might actually have gotten if they would have asked, but they don't think they need to ask. Yeah. So, but leaving aside the corruption part for the moment, which is a worldwide problem with people who are in power for too long, just an approach, when you've been in power for too long, you see everything through one set of eyes and one set of directions, and any solution, any problem requires a different view from time to time to, to, to look out from a different side of the box. Yeah. You know, uh, Mark, I'd, uh, appreciate, I appreciate, I agree with your, uh, your assessment, uh, but you also mentioned that maybe not for other elected officials, like, for example, congressmen or senators. Uh, could you expand your thoughts on that? I, because I agree with that as well. Well, okay, two reasons. Number one, uh, the legislative process, when someone comes into Congress, let's say, usually doesn't have a lot of power or he's a newbie. It takes time to develop the connections, to learn how things work, to move your way forward in terms of committee assignments, 
um, all of those type of things. So maybe there should be some sort of term limits, but it should be much, much larger, I don't know, six terms, eight terms, ten terms, I'm not sure what it, what it should be. Um, but it should be enough time for someone to, to learn, the, learn the positions on the job and to, to get certain, amass a certain amount of power and ability to represent his dis- district or, or state. So you need to find the right balance, obviously. I mean, if you had one-term limits or two-term limits on congressmen or senators, you would, they would never get anything done because they wouldn't know what they're doing. Well, and I have a... more d- in control by other lobbyists yeah. and other people who are telling them what to do. And that would be my so, point, too, is that uh, they, uh, the country would be run by bureaucrats who are telling the senators and congressmen. <laughs> right, very much so. But you need to find the right balance. Look, a senator who's, who retires at 88, that's a little bit of a problem, too. Yeah. Maybe he ran the first time at 80, okay, but you know what I'm saying. In yes, other words, I do. someone who's been there for 40 years in the Senate, maybe that's a little bit long also. I agree. But I guess the voters can decide that, you know, but, but then we get into the problem that incumbents have a huge advantage in fundraising and a huge advantage in a race. Yeah. So it, it's, a, it's a challenge to figure out where the balance lies. I must there should be some balance. Yeah, and I will assert uh, here that we uh, have the 17th Amendment right now, which allowed uh, a a popular election for our U.S. senators, which I think is a mistake. It was previously uh, uh, voted on no, by the state. Otherwise, it would be really totally lobbyists. No, absolutely not. The legislatures, they can't decide who's going to be the senator at this point. And in this day and age, when the when the state legislatures are completely controlled by lobbyists, all in both parties, hmm. that would be a total disaster. What an interesting thought. Who would thought. be a senator? based on what? Uh, well, I don't, I you, don't... you really, I mean, generally speaking, if I had it, you know, Generalized. It's true generalization, but it's the generalization of 50 states. The amount of the high-level involvement and of high-level people in the state legislatures who are independent thinkers and are not controlled by special interests is very, very small. Interesting observation. And I wouldn't want to see our senators elected in, in that sort of way. Yeah. So, uh, um, and I, I understand that there's a lot of corruption in state government. It has been in the past. I, I get all that. I think right here in Florida, things are a little bit different. That's why I've... I've you know, based on my uh, judgment, based on what I see in Florida here. So I, I want to move to uh, I want to move to what's uh, happening with uh, the China. They've made a decision now that people can have three children. That's a little late in the game for that. To, I think, to my opinion, it seems to absolutely. Me they, they they tried two children and it wasn't enough. They're running into a demographic disaster. You know, as when we were all growing up. We were hearing about the population bomb in China, and there'd be too many Chinese, and they would control the world because they had too many people. Yeah. Well, then China came with its one-child policy, and it was very successful. The only problem with it was it was too successful, and the population of China is declining. Yeah. And, of course, what happens when you decline? What happens is you have a, a curve where the older people make up a higher percentage of the population than the younger people. Right. And then who is working in order to provide you know, the equivalent of Social Security, pensions, and everything else is a real, real problem. And, of course, productivity gets a hit. And so China has this population problem. Much, I mean, Japan has the problem. A good part of Europe has the problem. The United States hasn't had the problem until now because of immigration. Um, but we're starting to see the problem also as we cut back on immigration uh, because immigrants both physically bring new people and also first and second generation of immigrants tend to have more children than later generations do. Yeah. And what's so, interesting, too, China, you know, China uh, had... Uh, uh, no, uh, I may be not getting this correct, but it had a limitation on uh, women, on uh, girls being born or uh, having. Uh, well, right. Cause what was taking place was, of course, if you could only have one child, and in the Chinese culture, a boy is very important. They would be aborting uh, girls in order to have a boy. Yeah. If you so, can have three children at this point, you'll be happy to have a girl. So I'm, my, I'm wondering if there's so much testosterone and so little <laughs> females uh, to reproduce. It's a, it's a problem. There, there, there is an imbalance. I think the imbalance is. Something in the area, of, I haven't read this in a while, but it was somewhere in the area of 52% to 48% yeah. uh, male versus female. And it doesn't sound like a big imbalance, but when you're talking about you know, hundreds of thousands of men who can't find mates, right. it's a real problem. Absolutely. But then you have the other side of it, women who don't want to get married and all the other sort of things involved. So it, it, it's a real, real problem, and it's a, it's a worldwide problem. Now, look, maybe robots and AI and all those things will be the solution. And maybe what we're all worried about in terms of robots, etc., that they take away jobs and there won't be jobs for people, maybe it won't be relevant because, hey, we'll have, um, we won't have as many people, so we have robots taking over a certain percentage of our jobs. A real possibility, I don't know. Hmm. Um, it's worth thinking about. It's a possible solution to 
to this problem. Hmm. Um, but like I said, the United States has always been blessed with large numbers of immigration, which have kept up kept the American uh, birth rate higher, and of course, net population growth positive. Yeah, so uh, one of the countries that is a Turkey that addressed this problem head on by uh, uh, rewarding and uh, contributing to people who actually ha- start families and, and have large families. Was it Turkey? Oh, absolutely. A bunch of countries that do that. I, the, most of Scandinavia does that also. Hmm. It's not working, though. Uh, Scandinavia is basically having one child on average. Um, you know, ch- children, when you when you... When you want two careers and everything else, it starts becoming a, a trade-off people are making. Yeah. Um, and also, it's expensive, and all the things that people want to give their children, all the different specialty items they want and everything else. So it's um, a real challenge. And I think um, the demographic time bomb that exists in much of the world, and the United States needs to worry about it too as well, especially as we've been pushing down a little bit our immigration numbers. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a serious problem. Yeah, if the economy for the for an economy to grow, generally speaking, you need to have a growing population. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we kind of skipped over anti-Semitism here in the United States. I want to get your comments on that. So it's a very interesting thing and a sad thing. Um, anti-Semitism seems to exist well at the extremes of the political spectrum. Um, particularly the last four years, we saw more of it on, on the far right. Now we're seeing it on the far left. There's a equation of uh, Jews in Israel, which isn't obviously uh, the average American Jew has absolutely nothing to do with the state of Israel. Maybe maybe they give some money, maybe they visit once in a while, but they're not controlled in any which way. And we've also reached a situation where the far left in the United States has somehow equated uh, the Palestinians with the Black Lives Matters and mm-hmm. and. Um, that every Palestinian is the equivalent of um, George Floyd, and that um, there, there's that sense that that the Palestinians are the are the victims, uh, African Americans who are being persecuted. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, nothing could be further. I mean, there are issues and there are serious issues, but of course, uh, there are more African African Israelis than there are African Palestinians. There's a very large. Um, Percentage of not large percentage, but a very significant number in the hundreds of thousands yeah. of Ethiopian Jews who came to to Israel from Ethiopia, and of course, most of the Jews that came from Arab countries are dark skinned. Plus, uh, so plus, plus, Mark, haven't people conflated Hamas with the Palestinians? Right. Well, they've definitely conflated Hamas with the Palestinians. I mean, the the logic that these left organizations, LGBT and everything else, are supporting Hamas. They would basically, if they found LGBT people in Gaza, they would shoot them at the town square. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Hamas is a reactionary religious group that, that doesn't allow anything. I mean, right. women are to <coughs> have no voice. All of these things. Yeah. And Hamas is a terror organization. That The reason there's no... Excuse me. The, one of the major reasons there is no peace between Israel and the Palestinians, besides the fact that the Palestinians twice turned down offers that would have created two states, yeah. was also the bombings that Hamas did to try to disrupt the the, the peace process. Yeah. You know, d- during a time of Rabin's assassination, immediately afterwards, Hamas um, ran a whole series of bombings that, as a result, Netanyahu beat Paris in an election that took place a year after Rabin's death. And that was Hamas, who was doing all it could um, to stop the peace process, because they don't believe in peace. They believe that the only solution to the Palestinian-Israeli problem is Palestine, right? no Israel. And so, um, you know, I, it, it's beyond words that these people are supporting Hamas. Exactly. There's no understanding. Uh, Mark, before I let you go, can you make a comment about what's happening in Belarus? And uh, now that uh, Putin seems to have stepped up to support uh this guy. Absolutely, because he probably knew in advance this is his his sort of action, you know. Yeah. He'll say, you know, we'll do whatever we want. We don't care about the world. That's how Putin has tried, tried to act. Um, the reality is uh, no one's flying to Belarus. Their airline is basically grounded that no one's willing to fly in, let them fly. The question is, how long will it go on? This has to be one of the strongest set of sanctions ever given against the country, because the minute we go into a situation where uh, airlines aren't safe overflying other countries. We disrupt one of the most basic functions of uh, of international a- international aviation, 
and international agreements that have existed since World War II, and actually in this case since World War I. So uh, this is so very basic. By doing so, he's so upset the international order, and he needs to pay. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. Of course, he's a real dictator and needs to be take, overthrown, but it's a different story. Mark Schulman, again, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I encourage you to visit the website. It's terrific for kids of all ages, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining My us. My pleasure. Have a wonderful week, everybody. You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed. Larry is the uh, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Lyndon and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Offshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of 1st Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit gulfshoreplayhouse.org. That's gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's where I uh, hope you'll visit Choice Social. It's a refreshing social networking platform. You can find out more by visiting choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. Larry is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. A word about uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We're an educational organization focused on high school and college students, and we work to educate and inspire them in ideas that we think made America great in the first place, things like private property, respect for the rights of individuals, free enterprise, small government, and personal character. And we do that through our website, which is feefee.org, and through uh, videos and through in-person events all over the, uh, the country. Yeah, great organization. If uh, you have somebody high school or college age in your life, please introduce them to this terrific organization, fee.org, F-E-E.org. Larry, we, uh, have, uh, before we get into the topic at hand, I wonder if you had any comments about uh, the observation or observing Memorial Day. Yes, I do. I think, Bob, that this is so much more than uh, just a day off work or a day to have a good time. It, is, it should be, and it is, a day of reflection and remembrance uh, for those men and women who, in the service of the country, uh, gave the ultimate sacrifice. And I hope people will take time out to remember that. That is the uh, principal reason we have a Memorial Day. It isn't just to have a good time. 
it's uh, that day of reflection and remembrance so that we do not forget what those uh, uh, brave people did for us. Uh, easy to take for granted uh, the freedom. What we uh, <laughs> Sometimes one man's trash is another man's treasure. You know, so many people would want to have the freedom that we have and take for yeah. granted here in this country. Larry, you read such an interesting uh, column about George Shiler, I guess his name is, journalist, individualist, and courageous contrarian. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yes, George Schuyler was a fascinating man. He was a black man who uh, rarely went along with the consensus within the black community. He was a contrarian, uh, kind of iconoclast. He was a journalist uh, all throughout his life, one of the few uh, at, in his day who were black and able to make a full-time living uh, by his writing. Mm -hmm. And he did that as a writer for... Uh, various publications, newspapers, but primarily uh, for 38 years, he was the writer of the editorials for America's best-known black newspaper called the Pittsburgh Courier. He wrote not only the editorials, but he wrote two columns every week, uh, commenting on events of the day, and uh, both intellectual and political, and uh, was uh, exerted a great deal of influence. Uh, uh, in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Yeah, uh, he was born in the late 1900s, as I recall, and uh, died. Yeah. He went in 77, or I think it's uh, sometime like that. So uh, certainly, he uh, Jim Crow was par a part of his life. I mean, and uh, he, as I understand from the column, that he grew up as uh, you know uh, being affected by socialism or by the progressive movement, but uh, uh, became a conservative. Yes, he did. Um, and uh, he's an interesting reflection of the uh, writings and teachings of Booker T. Washington, mm -hmm. uh, who came before him. Back at the turn of the uh, 19th to the 20th century, there was a split in America's black community as to which was the best path forward. Booker T. Washington was one who said the way for black people to advance is to focus on self-improvement, on um, uh, their own education, their personal character, he started a school at Tuskegee, uh, Alabama, of course. And then uh, the other side of the perspective was uh, represented by uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who argued for a much more uh, politically activist approach, um, uh, trying to get laws changed and so forth. And, of course, there's good reason to argue for both. Mm -hmm. uh, but the black community sort of split along those lines, and George Schuyler was very much in the Booker T. Washington camp. He felt that uh, the best way to heal the tensions between the races would be for black people to prove themselves uh, by starting business, by emphasizing their skills, and by uh, being as non-confrontational as possible. There were a lot of blacks, of course, who had impatience with that perspective, having been uh, victimized by decades of Jim Crow. But Schuyler thought that in the long run, that more uh, 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 accommodationist and some would say uh, reconciling attitude would be more productive. Yeah. W would it be fair to say that he probably would, would uh, disagree with Martin Luther King's approach? Yes. He, in fact, he was critical of King, especially in uh, King's later years. He really believed, Schuyler, that... Uh, uh, political activism, if it wasn't backed up by a change in ideas, if you, if you couldn't get uh, white people to see the value of uh, skilled, honorable black people, then any amount of government legislation would be thwarted by those public sentiments. So he said uh, black people need to focus on their personal character, productivity, and independence um, and, and then in the long run, changes in the law, when they did happen, would be more meaningful and easier to enforce. Right, and, and he was prescient in terms of uh, his observation of fascism and communism going into the Second World War. Yeah, he was. He saw Hitler and Stalin for what they really were and spoke out against them early, uh, long before America entered the uh, 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 Second World War against them. He said they were two peas in the same collectivist pod, and he even predicted, in fact, that uh, the differences between the two were so minimal that there would be an alliance. And, of course, in August of 1939, there was. Hitler and Stalin 
essentially started World War II by agreeing uh, that month to uh, invade Poland, Hitler from the West and Stalin from the East. That started the Second World War. Now, Hitler turned on Stalin later, but uh, that simply proves that there's no honor among thieves. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the other interesting thing, too, is that here we went through uh, segregation in our schools and so forth, but he spoke out for private schools or charter schools as opposed to government schools. Yes, that's true, and he did that uh, not only in his own column in the Pittsburgh Courier and elsewhere, but also in an article that he wrote for uh, the organization I'm with, the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, about 65 years ago, in uh, 1956, he wrote a piece called The Case for the Private School, and uh, in that he said, quote, many American parents feel rightly that they, and not the state, should be responsible for what their children become, yeah. that education should be divorced from political control, and that those who prefer private institutions for their children should not be taxed for the upkeep of facilities which they did not choose, nor curricula to which they do not want them exposed. Yeah. And, and a lot of parents feel that same way today, more probably than did uh, 65 years ago. Absolutely. Again, Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, you'll find this column at the fee.org, F-E-E.org. George Schuyler, for journalist, individualist, and courageous contrarian. Larry, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. Listen to the Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show as we're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us Jim McTagg. Jim is a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Uh, he retired and now he's writing some great murder mysteries. Uh, the first is Follow the Leader and its sequel is Shake the Money Tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here on this Memorial Day, Bob. It is indeed. Before we get into the topic at hand, which is uh, what's happening with the Democrat Party in Congress, uh, any comments at all about ob observation and observing Memorial Day? Yeah, you know, I can't help uh, but thinking about my father's generation. He was in the U.S. Marines in World War II at the age of uh, 18. Wow. 
Wow. You know, he was in combat in uh, Saipan, Tinian, and Okinawa. Wow. Three fierce battles. Uh, my the my friends growing up on the same street. Uh, one of their dads was in the army in Europe uh, under General Patton. Uh, you know, uh, 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 and other relative uh, was in the, in the navy in, in the fierce battles in the Pacific. Mm. And and what struck me was that. Uh, they never really talked about their experiences. Right. You know, we would we would watch uh, documentaries together on television, like Victory at Sea, uh, but they would never discuss their their personal experiences. They put that behind them. I mean, it was a horror, of course, mm-hmm. and they focused primarily on providing for their families. and And that generation, at least in the, in the corner of Philadelphia where I grew up were phenomenal providers. I mean, we weren't rich, uh, but we weren't, we were never, as kids, we never felt that we were needy, you yeah, know? Yeah. So, uh, uh, I, I just think that, that the sacrifice they made and, and, and their humility after, uh, uh, their courageous years at, at war, uh, is, it hasn't been duplicated no. in my lifetime. I must say that uh, your comments reflect, I think, what I've heard from so many people across the country. So uh, I don't know why uh, they choose to be silent. It may be because the experience was so horrific. But irrespective, uh, they were the great generation. for sure. Thank you for sharing that, Jim. So uh, what's going on? Right now we have a couple of people who seem to hold the keys to the kingdom in the uh, in Congress. Uh, Christian Cinema. Uh, uh, Joe Manchin, a guy named Kelly, apparently, uh, they, they seem to be just upsetting the entire uh, progressive agenda of the, of the left. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating and it's encouraging because, the, uh, he, you know, Biden is throwing uh, his budget uh, is just enormously expensive. It's crazy. It's, it's polit- politics, pure and simple. Kit- you know, democratic, progressive, kitchen sink politics. And although it occupies the headlines, from my long experience in Washington, I don't take it seriously, Uh, you know, because every president throws a kitchen sink into his budget, and it's really up to Congress to determine what survives. And the Democrats have a a narrow majority in the the House, and and they have a, you know, it's a 50-50 Senate with the vice president, the tiebreaker, uh, on paper, but in reality, as you mentioned, two Arizona senators, uh, Mark Kelly and uh, Kirsten Cinema, uh, and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, are uh, centrist. And the reason they're centrist is because President uh, Trump had a, has has a lot of supporters in Arizona. He has a lot of where where Kelly and Cinema and, uh, are from. And uh, he has a lot of supporters in West Virginia. So uh, these senators who have a, a very active survival instinct are not willing to swing to the left like the party. Uh, you know, they're, they're willing to compromise uh, with the uh, Republicans. And that uh, really puts the brakes on, on uh, the crazy progressive agenda yeah. and uh, gives these three enormous power and and uh, uh you know i think uh, they represent the future i think of the republican party these three democratic senators mm. uh, because uh i i you know in my view uh the the independents which can sw- swing an election are more centrist uh than way to the right or way to the left yeah you know, uh, for me, uh, I, I personally believe that uh, making America, this, especially in this, in this climate, what we're seeing with open borders and all the things and uh, reducing our, uh, our, or increasing our dependence uh, on oil for, for, and uh, energy for other countries, what, what I think is it's just encouraging people to be more supportive of the Trump agenda of make America great again. And uh, I, you may be right, uh, but uh, my opinion is that I think there's going to be a strong comeback for Make America uh, Great Again. Well, you know, I sense that's going to be the case, too. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, you talk about the border. Sinema uh, 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 and uh, Kelly are both in uh, Arizona, which is a border state. Right. Arizona has a lot of uh, Spanish speakers, but uh, Arizona is in favor of a strong border. And so Sinema uh, and uh, Kelly are in favor of a strong border. So a, a lot of their positions uh, reflect uh, Donald Trump's positions. Uh, they're not as far to the right as he is, uh, but they do, and they do act more like uh, uh, Rockefeller Republicans than Democrats, and they are quite willing to negotiate with the Republicans to reach common ground. Yeah. So, for example, on Biden's infrastructure proposal, which uh, he would like to spend $3 trillion, <laughs> Uh, they're more in the trillion-dollar ballpark where the Republicans are. And uh, that seems like an enormous amount of money to me. But um, you know how Congress is. They like to bring home the bacon, and uh, uh, they like to spend uh, regardless of the party. So I, I think we're going to have an infrastructure bill, but it'll be because of these uh, three Democratic senators, it'll be far more conservative than what uh, Biden has been pitching. I must say, I am so grateful for their positions because otherwise, with the 51 or with the, with the vice president voting in the Senate, if everybody voted along party lines, we would end up with that $3 trillion plan. We would end up with uh, H.R. 1 or whatever the, uh, the bill is with regard to national position on, on voting. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, I'm so grateful for that our founders decided to uh, create a government like they did. Yeah, you know, the other remarkable thing with Biden is uh, Larry Summers, who was the Treasury Secretary under uh, Obama, is vociferously criticizing his budget plan as a, you know, a, a recipe for disastrous inflation. Um, so I think that's very interesting. And then the Washington Post, uh, which leans to the left, and which I read every day, has been very critical of the Biden uh, budget proposal as, you know, as being uh, harebrained in, 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 its, uh, in its size and scope. So um, it's, um, you know, these, in a sense, these three Democrats are uh, saving him from uh, making a uh, horrible economic mistake and, and uh, igniting the kind of inflation that, uh, you know, older Americans remember from the uh, Lyndon Johnson, Jimmy Carter years, those, that destructive, horrible inflation that lasted almost a decade. Yeah. You know, the younger, yeah, the younger people don't understand what's going on here. So uh, the, the, it's the another reason was, to the, praise them. The, the, the coup d'etat was the... Uh, Carter saying that it's your fault, my American citizens. You're li living under a cloud of malaise. <laughs> he was, he blamed the whole thing on us. But right now we're sitting at five percent inflation. I mean, uh, the annualized rate of inflation, as I read, I think I read, it's it's running at about five percent. That's not small. That's going to take a quite a chunk, quite a bite out of uh, the middle class income. Yeah. Uh it's also a supply. I mean, I mean, it could moderate. We've heard the stories about it. It's really uh, the supply chain is being strangled. Uh, I went to a furniture store with my wife uh, this weekend. Uh, 26 weeks if you order a table from yeah. factory to your house. 26 weeks. My brother-in-law works for a uh, candy company that imports product from China. They can't get the product off the ships in Los, Los Angeles because there aren't enough workers to unload the ships. So when, say, a million-dollar order comes into his company, he will only give you 500000 because they want to make sure they have something for all of their customers. That's I nice. mean, it's uh, so this could moderate. Uh, however, if, if Biden gets his way and injects, you know, trillions into the economy, uh, game over, you're going to watch your savings evaporate as yeah. prices soar to the stratosphere. Absolutely. Jim McTague, again, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of two great murder mysteries. I hope you get a copy of Follow the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Jim, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to, to talk to a great broadcaster like you. Thank uh, you. Oh, thank you so much, Jim.
Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Tomorrow, we're going to visit with Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator. We'll find out what's new with Boo. She's up in the tundra there, up in Wisconsin. Uh, Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government, will be joining us, as well as my wife, Linda. And she just wrote another Greetings from Paradise. We'll talk to her about that as well. I hope you make it a great day. Observe Memorial Day. And don't forget about the event at the Hodges Funeral Home today at 10 a.m. Namaste. so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.